On today's episode, which is the second in a two-part series, we are deep diving into the steps that go into actually making your Korean beauty products. If you're keen to take a peek behind the curtain and see how everything gets made, then stick around. If you missed the first part, then take a look back to last week's episode, which is part one. Welcome to The Korean Beauty Show, where we're talking all things Korean skincare, makeup, and more. If you want to learn about the hottest trending products and ingredients straight from South Korea, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, we'll be diving in to take a look at the latest trends, as well as all the tips and tricks you need to perfect your K-beauty routine. I'm your host, Lauren Lee, professional K-beauty expert and founder of Korean beauty platform Style Story. Today's podcast episode is brought to you by Style Story. Get free domestic shipping all month in July with the code PODCAST on stylestory.com.au. Welcome back, guys. We are here for another episode of the Korean Beauty Show podcast. Uh, If you tuned in last week, you will know that we started the first in a two-part series, which is taking a look behind the scenes, I guess, behind the curtain to see how the sausage gets made and how K-beauty products are actually manufactured here on the ground in Korea. So today I'm going to continue that and go into just a little bit more detail about what it actually takes to get a product from, uh, I guess, idea to the thing that's on your bathroom shelf. So if that sounds like something you're interested in finding out about, then obviously stick around. Uh, If we have already met well first of all welcome to the show we are super glad to have you Uh, we are a podcast obviously that talks a lot about Korean beauty Uh, everything that you need to know I guess to get a bit more of an understanding about what the industry actually is uh, why you might want to explore the world of Korean beauty what what products you might want to use um, the ingredients that go into them, basically everything. It's just a big look behind the scenes on K-beauty, uh, Korean skincare, makeup, uh, and all the different moving parts of what is a really, really big industry, both here in Korea and around the world. So that is what we do here. We are super happy to have you along and let's jump into the show. So to start off this week with our K-Beauty News headlines, I have an update on the Korean sunscreen controversy for you guys. So the KFDA was already taking administrative action against the brands that were involved. Obviously, this has been in the news headlines since December last year, and more and more brands and products were seemingly implicated. And what has ended up happening is that a Around 300 people have now joined together in a class action, uh, which is being run by a local law firm called Warlin, and they've actually made a claim to the Korean Food and Drug Administration. And the class action is against eight different companies, including CJ Olive Young, who actually sold many of the products on their website. Uh, so the basis of the claim is in the Cosmetics Act. Uh, 
Article 13 that prohibits unfair labeling um, in advertising. So basically, this article of the cosmetics regulation or the cosmetics law prohibits displays or advertisements of products that may deceive or mislead consumers. So this kind of deceptive or misleading um, phraseology, I guess you could say, is very, very common in consumer protection laws all around the world. I know Australia has a very, very similar phrasing in our, um, in the ACL, which is the Australian Consumer Law, basically aimed at preventing companies from engaging in practices that are likely to deceive or mislead a consumer. And in this case, the alleged deceptive or misleading conduct was that the SPF products, the sunscreens in question had a certain level of SPF protection. I think nearly all of these products were being advertised at SPF 50. And the whole, I guess, um, controversy first kicked off when it was revealed that some of these products did not test at SPF 50. So six products have been named um, from a whole range of different brands that have been obviously mentioned in the Korean media, so Puritos, Centella Green Level Safe and Sunblock, the Diaclairs Soft Airy UV Essence, um, Round Labs Birch Moisture Sun Cream, Higge's Lily Life, I think it is, Sun Moisturizer, Dr. Jart's um, Solar Biome Ampoule as well. Um, so they are some of the big brands that have been implicated. Uh, and in fact, a lot of these brands have actually come out now on their official Instagram pages and made con- uh, comments or statements around, you know, apologizing, um, you know, saying what they're going to do, how they're going to deal with the uh, returns process, the refund process and all of that. So I think this has been fairly well covered as to what the products actually are and who the brands actually are at this point in time. Uh, but interestingly, CJ Olive Young has been brought into the suit. And that is on the basis of an article in the Cosmetics Act that regulates dual liability. So basically, they have been caught in the crossfires because they have been given these products to sell by the brands and they have sold them on the basis of the data that was provided to them by the brands, uh, namely that the products were SPF 50 plus, And now that they have turned out not to be, they, CJ Young, are also being included in this class action. So there you go. That is a bit of an interesting update. Um, But needless to say, it's not just an issue that has been swept under the the rug here in Korea. Um, It has actually turned into quite a big issue. I know that there are um, YouTube channels in Korea that are talking about it, um, including legal ones, uh, and then obviously... uh, An Insok, who is uh, the head of one of the independent agencies that has actually retested a lot of these products, has been talking about this on her Instagram page and her YouTube as well. So, yeah, this is an ongoing issue, but um, I think today's episode will actually maybe shed some light onto how problems like these can arise. Uh, So why don't we get started, get stuck in to how products are actually made. Now, when it comes to manufacturing any beauty product, any cosmetic, the first thing that any brand should really be looking at is 
the regulations in the country or market where the product is going to be sold. This is literally the starting point. Before you come up with the next big thing or whatnot, um, you know, maybe discover some brilliant new ingredient, you really need to understand, well, can I actually sell this ingredient? Can I actually sell a product like this in the country that I want to sell it into? Uh, and I know that, um, you know, in some cases with some of these sunscreens that ended up not testing at the right um, levels or product, you know, brands that ran into problems with their sunscreens, they didn't ask themselves this basic question. And I know Crave Beauty was one of these companies. They uh, manufactured essentially a sunscreen product and then realized too little too late that it couldn't be sold in America, which was one of their key markets. Uh, and so they tried to sort of fudge it by selling it as, uh, a, you know, a different product than what it actually was. They said, okay, well, this is not an SPF. We'll call it something else. I think they decided to call it an antioxidant fluid or something like that. Um, but these kind of problems can all be avoided in the first place if the brands take a look at the places where they actually want to sell the product and read the legislation. Read the legislation that applies to the sale and the import of cosmetics in that market. So in Australia, there are so many different pieces of legislation that apply to importing Korean cosmetics. Um, and as a, for, as a lawyer, these are the kind of things that I am very, very familiar with. So obviously, just a few of the pieces of legislation that you would need to look at if you are looking to import into Australia are things like the Australian Consumer law, the poison standard, the cosmetic standard uh, of 2007, the Therapeutic Goods Act, the Trade Practices Consumer Product Information Standards Cosmetic Regulations, the Industrial Chemicals Notification and Assessment Act. So that is just a few of them. There are literally a whole suite of legislations that govern all of these kind of things. And any brand getting started needs to be aware of what these are so that they don't run into issues basically. Um, and that really, I think, should come first before anything else, before they go and find a cosmetic lab, before they create a formula, before they manufacture it, definitely before they manufacture it. Um, you know, I think a lot of the time, especially with maybe newer brands, um, indie beauty brands and things like that, they can get really, really excited about the process of marketing the product. Um, I know our company at Style Story, we consult for a lot of people that are wanting to make products in Korea. And, you know, I can't tell you the amount of times that we get an email from someone that's like, I want to create the next viral product. And we're like, okay, let's just take a step back. You know, <laughs> like what, who, who is our target market? What are we creating? Like, viral product that doesn't really mean anything you know anything can go viral i guess but you need to like take a step back and look at all of the different parts of it to actually create this product so this is how the process should work so when you are starting out after you've you know taken a look at all the different regulations you know the other thing that brands probably should take a look at is if they're targeting launching in particular stores. There are some stores, particularly in the US, that have a whole range of criteria for how to actually get into the store, what kind of ingredients that they will accept and they will not accept. So that's an, another really important part of the process is understanding that. You know, it's one thing if the brands, I guess, are just selling online, but if they want to actually go offline, then there's a whole nother layer um, behind that about, you know, what about if you want to get um, labeled 
as a clean beauty brand, what do you need to do to, you know, come out with that certification? What about if you want to get labeled as a vegan product? What do you need to do? What needs to be in your product? What needs to not be in it, um, importantly? So they're the kinds of things that brands really should be thinking about from the very start. But I think that this you know, scandal in the industry has shown that some people are putting the cart before the horse, so to speak. So once that has all been decided and the brands know what they're actually wanting to create, the next hard part of the process, especially in Korea, is finding a cosmetics lab to work with. So assuming that you are not capable of creating the product yourself, you're going to need to find someone that can do it for you. Or maybe you are capable of doing the product yourself, but you're manufacturing in such a high quantity that you know you can't do that yourself. So in Korea, because as we spoke about last week, there is so much demand from both Korean domestic brands and international brands to manufacture manufacture products in Korea, at the moment, it's actually really hard to get into a cosmetic lab. Uh, if you are not manufacturing in like certain quantities and the MOQs in Korea, what we call the minimum order quantity, is really quite on the high side. Uh, a lot of times, if you can't meet that minimum order quantity, you won't even get a response from the, the lab. You know, they'll just ignore you. So that can be a really, really hard part of the process in Korea, which, you know, in, in other countries, not necessarily as difficult. And that's just because of how hot the industry is at the moment. The, the next part, I guess, is creating the formula. And I know we spoke last week about the different ways that you can do that. Obviously, you can make the formula yourself from scratch. And, you know, some brands definitely do do that. The other way is to outsource it to another company. Um, they can hire a cosmetic chemist to make it for them or even just use an existing formula that's already out there and whack their own label on it. That's just one of the many different ways that formulas come to be. There are obviously pluses and minuses to each of those approaches. And in some cases, the brand doesn't actually end up owning its formula. And that is particularly the case if you are just using an existing formula that the particular lab already has on hand. That's their formula, not the brand's formula. So if you've ever tried a product and thought, mm, this is suspiciously similar to another product I've tried, maybe it actually is the same formula. That is definitely a possibility. Um, or it could just be that they've made minor tweaks to the formula. And this was a thing that was evident in the sunscreen controversy. When people were looking at the ingredients, they were essentially the same for some of the brands that were implicated in the controversy and what it as it turned out it was just that they there was a base sunscreen formula that the particular manufacturer was giving to everyone and making minor tweaks and adjustments so that's how that sort of happened now there's nothing wrong with that that is a perfectly legitimate way of making a cosmetic product but that is how things like that can happen so obviously you know if there's any issue with the formula itself, then that could cause problems. But that is on its own a very legitimate way of making a cosmetic formula. There are definitely lots of companies out there that that's how they do it. Um, so yeah, lots of different ways 
that the formula itself can come into existence. Uh, another thing that I guess a lot of people probably wouldn't think about is packaging. So it's part of the process usually to find a packaging manufacturer and it's not as simple as just finding a prototype of a packaging that you like. So you might have looked at a cosmetic and gone, mm, I don't really like that packaging. I wish it had looked like, you know, something else. But there are a lot of things that go into finding the right packaging for the right product. Now, one part of that is that the packaging needs to be good enough for that particular formula to enable it to pass various stress tests um, and stability tests. So oftentimes you can find a really, really beautiful package, but the particular formula when you put it in it it's just not going to protect the formula. Now, a classic case of this would be a product that contains pure vitamin C that is in transparent packaging. That is a no-go for pure vitamin C. Why? Because it is sensitive to heat and light. So that's just one example. I can tell you another example of um, one of our own Jellico products. We have had so many problems trying to find the right packaging for this formula because a lot of the prototypes that we have tried for it, when it's put up to a really, really high temperature, which is a part of the stability testing process, the packaging pops open. So it's, it is you know basically exploding out. So that's not a good fit for that particular formula. So we have to keep you know, trying different options until we find the perfect packaging for that particular formula. Uh, I know cleansing balms have a whole other, um, you know, issue with that kind of thing. So you will often see, you know, cleansing balms having their own particular packaging issues um, and, you know, peculiarities, I guess, because they need to withstand those really high heats and not melt. Um, so, you know, there is so much more to packaging than just picking something pretty and putting a label on it. The other thing will be if you've ever seen, you know, packaging, um, particularly for more of the indie brands, the smaller brands, and you just think, oh, that's not very pretty. Well, when you're talking about packaging, they have really, really high minimum order quantities for, um, you know, maybe designing your own bottle. Like if you've ever seen a really beautiful bottle for a cosmetic product, chances are they've made a lot of them, like, you know, 10,000, 20,000, so that when they come to their packaging, they can afford to do something a little bit more bespoke. But if you are only making, say, 500 of a product, 1,000 of a product, you're, you just have to basically go with what's on the shelf. You're not going to get anything too whiz-bang or fancy, um, and you're going to be constrained in how you actually print onto that, whether you can print onto that or whether you have to use a sticker. Like these are all things that, you know, are come back to how many of them you're actually making. If you're only making 2000 of them, you're not going to be printing onto them and having, you know, some really whiz bang packaging option. So the more you make, the more you can do and the prettier you can make them, which is why the bigger brands tend to have really, really innovative packaging. And that is why, is because they're making so many of them. They can afford to have special molds built and make, you know, different, I guess, looking packaging as well. So there are a lot of things that go into packaging that's not just, hey, get that formula and just whack it in. It's a much more complicated process than that. Um, and that can often be a real bottleneck for 
the creation of new products as well, which is what I have experienced um, definitely for the brands that I've worked with. And then obviously Jellico, we are having that exact problem at the moment. Uh, so yeah, that is a big, big part of the process. Um, packaging designers, obviously when it comes to making a cosmetic package and the kind of things that need to go onto it, it's a little bit different from just like a regular graphic designer that maybe designs flyers or brochures or something like that. They're experts really because they are intimately familiar with the layout of the boxes and how the design will all fit together once the box is folded up as well as the things like the symbols and the labels that need to go onto a cosmetics box. So there are a lot of packaging designers who are experts in Korea. I'm sure there are in other countries as well, but that is its own special skill into knowing what to highlight, what to include, how it all fits together. And that's uh, an important part of the process because this comes back to the first part, which is where we started, and that is the cosmetic labeling laws. Uh, have you included everything that you need to include by law? Do you have, you know, the, the measurements that you need to include, you know, in all the various different countries? Do you have the ingredients set out in the right order in accordance with the legislation? So this whole part of the process is actually really, really important. It's not as, you know, I guess fluffy as just picking out pretty bits and pieces and throwing them all together and then, you know, putting it on the market. Uh, the next really, really big process or part of making a cosmetic product is testing. So testing the formula, testing the packaging. Now, a lot of the kind of stability tests are not required by law necessarily. So for example, the FDA, the European Commission, they don't require them, but they are good practice for cosmetic products. Uh, and when we're talking about stability testing, we're basically talking about creating a batch of formula lots of different samples and then testing them under different environmental conditions for a set amount of time. So you are looking or the manufacturer is looking for how the conditions affect the formula. Uh, if it's a different temperature, if it's exposed to different light, it's meant to simulate what will happen to the product during its life cycle. And that process alone can take up to a year depending on the formula. Um, basically, there are three types of stability tests. You're testing for physical and chemical integrity. So things like color, odor, fragrance, pH level, all of that kind of thing. You can test for the microbiological stability, whether the product develops bacteria, mold, yeast. Uh, the stability of the packaging, like I said, is a really tricky part a lot of the time to, to match the specific formula and the ingredients in the formula with the packaging and to make sure that it holds up at like a really high temperature or when it's exposed to light. So one thing I will say is that the amount of time it takes to develop a product doesn't necessarily correlate to quality. Basically, unless the brand is creating something entirely new that doesn't already exist, then the process can be relatively quick. And last week we spoke about how K-beauty brands have been able to respond to market trends so quickly. And that's because, you know, it doesn't necessarily take a year. It can, depends on the product. 
Um, so that's just like a couple of the different things that go into even this process of coming up with a product. So you can see that um, th there's a lot involved in it. It is definitely not as simple as it looks necessarily. Um, and it can take a very long time to get all of these different moving pieces of the puzzle working together to actually come up with a product and then be able to, to introduce it to the market. The next stage, once you've ticked all of those boxes, so you've got your packaging, you've got your formula, you've got packaging in a formula that works, you've tested it, it's passed the testing, then you are, well, the brand is producing the product. So that uh, process can be really quick if everything is able to be delivered at the same time and the lab has capacity to make and fill the formula. But this can also take a really long time as well, you know, potentially. An ingredient that you need for the formula, you ha don't have enough of it to make the product. So you need to wait for the ingredient to come maybe from overseas, maybe from somewhere else. Uh, maybe the jars need to get made. Maybe you're making so many jars and they've only got 5,000 and you need 10,000, you're gonna have to wait. So production itself, that can take quite a while. I have seen uh, it take like even six months from everything having passed testing just to getting to the point where the lab has availability because like I said, Korean labs at the moment really, really are popular. So they have wait times and wait lists. So the day you call the lab and say, hey, we're ready to go, they might give you a schedule like in three months time, two months time and be like, yep, we'll see you then. So that process itself can be quite time consuming and involves a lot of different things coming together. Um, obviously it depends on, you know, how many different companies are involved. If, you've, if the brand has, I guess, outsourced everything to one particular company, maybe it can happen a little bit quicker. Uh, but if they're, you know, outsourcing ingredients to one person, um, that you know, the, the jars to another person, the formula to another person, that can take a lot of time to get it together. And then the next part of the process is quality control. So obviously once the products are made, you've got to check, right? Are there defects in the packaging? Maybe the printing didn't come out properly. Um, you know, has the product been filled to the right level? So I know, for example, in Australia, we have legislation that governs measurements. So it is a legal requirement to check that a product has been labeled correctly. So if the jar is a 50 gram jar, does it actually contain 50 grams worth of product? In any manufacturing process, a certain amount of products can be expected to have defects in them as well. That's just natural. So a lot of manufacturers will make allowances for that in their contract with the brand and they will say, they will specify an amount of defects that they consider to be normal. And when I'm talking about defects, obviously I'm not talking about the formula itself. That would be very problematic if it was defective, but things like the packaging, the printing or the labeling, like when everything went through, was it like slightly to the side and now all of the writing is like slightly too far to the left or something like that. Or, you know, potentially I'm sure everyone has had an experience before where you have like a pump product and the pump's not working properly, like that's a defect. So a lot of manufacturers will say, you know, if there's, you know, 3% of defects out of a batch of 10,000, that's normal, um, you know, and then the brand just has to go, okay, well, th those are defective. All right, we'll wear that. So 
There are so many different moving parts that go into actually coming up with a cosmetic product, but this is the process that you will see being repeated all over Korea um, and obviously in other countries as well. But this is the market that I am familiar with. This is the market that I know how things get done here. Uh, and that is happening all over the country every day. So the different brands that you are following on Instagram, the different brands of products that you're using, that is the general process for how they are getting made, uh, for the kinds of things that they're looking into, the kinds of tasks, I guess, that go on behind the scenes. Uh, if you've ever had a product go out of stock for a while and you're wondering, hey, how come that's been out of stock for so long? Could be that is something in this part of the process that is being held up and the brand can't you know, actually get it out any quicker. That's why. Um, reformulations and things like that. You know, if you've ever had a favorite product reformulated, I think now you can appreciate how much more effort there needs to go into checking everything all over again and why there are sometimes delays between phasing out an old product and bringing in a new product is because there is so much that can go wrong, so much that can be held up that means that, you know, everything doesn't get done as quickly as maybe the brand would like, the consumer would like. So that is just a little bit of a deep dive into how Korean beauty products actually get made. I hope that this was interesting. Uh, definitely let me know. I would love to hear your feedback. Do you want more episodes like this? Less? Let me know. Uh, you can leave a review as well. That would be great if you can do that. If you did like today's episode, I would love if you can share it on social media and tag me at lauren.kbeauty. If you are interested in manufacturing in Korea, please get in touch with our team. Um, we work with companies from all over the world to launch and manufacture their products and we would love to talk to you as well. Um, you can come and find us starstory.com.au and down the bottom of our website we have a section for consulting and manufacturing. So guys, that is all I had for you today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you have a great rest of the week, whatever you are doing, wherever you are in the world. And we will chat again next Tuesday. Until next time, I'll see you on Style Story.